Okay, I'm going to confess something. I'm the kind of person who's probably been kind of snickering at rebranding for quite some time. You see it happen with companies like, oh, I don't know, Facebook. The parent company is no longer going to be Facebook. It's going to be Meta. So yeah, rebranding can be the last refuge of scoundrels. But it can also be the product of some kind of deep thinking about what a company or a brand or, yeah, a radio show is what it wants to do, whether it's telling its audience effectively about what it is and what it wants to do, it can be a useful process. We're going to look at rebranding today. We're going to talk to some people who've done it effectively, some people who are about to do it. And we're going to talk about the fact that we here on The Colin McEnroe Show are about to go through some form of rebranding. So that's what's coming up right after the news. There's a term that's been around for a really long time, rebranding. You're probably hearing it more these days. And of course, it came up most saliently recently when Facebook as a parent company of a bunch of things, including Facebook, rebranded as Meta. But it's been around and it's been happening a lot in the 21st century. Philip Morris became Altria. Apple Computer became Apple. Radio Shack became The Shack and then went bankrupt. Uh, Google created a new parent company, Alphabet. The New Britain Rock Cats became the Hartford Yard Goats. Tribune Publishing Company became Tronk. What a really terrible idea. Tronk then became the Tribune Publishing Company. Dunkin' Donuts became Dunkin'. I could go on and on. And then a lot of sports franchises have changed their names in order to get away, usually from some offensive stereotype. My favorite, of course, being the Washington football team, formerly the Washington Redskins. It's going to be something else eventually. Although one thing we want to say today, because our show is about to go through the process of rebranding, is that rebranding does not always mean that you're just going to get a new name. It might not mean that at all. It's not going to mean that in our case. We're not going to be called something else. Rebranding can be a lot more than that. And here to help us understand, Patrick Dugan, who's been with us before, creative director and chief copywriter at Adams and Knight in Avon. Pat, welcome back to our show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, at least my understanding of rebranding is it, it doesn't necessarily have to result in an actual new name for a company and product so much as it has to somehow or other constitute a reflection on the message that the company or product is sending about itself. That's right. I would say that the name change is probably the most dramatic rebranding that, that you could have. We see all kinds of rebrandings, everything from just like the positioning of the brand or the company to taglines, logos, the color of the company, their identity, the typography they use, and the voice. And typically, whose idea is this? Do companies come to advertising firms to say, you know, we want to rebrand? Do they get kind of spurred on to do that by somebody else telling them you need to rebrand? Uh, yeah, I would say it falls into generally three categories. There's either the times have changed and they recognize that and that they need to kind of change with them, or the company themselves has changed in some dramatic way, or maybe in the case of Facebook, they screwed up or they're under some sort of scrutiny and they want to change pretty dramatically, pretty quickly. <laughs> I guess the other thing that you want to do is rebrand successfully. There's some rebrands that are probably doomed. Radio Shack was probably going to go the way of the Dodo no matter what they did. Uh, and, and you know, with something like Tribune, I don't know what they were thinking with Tronk. What makes it really, really successful? How does it, when, when do you know a rebrand is successful and what are the qualities of that? You know pretty quickly and you want to make sure that it's just authentic and true and that it's it's based on something real, which is why you know the, a lot of the ones that fail are the ones that the company hasn't done the right kind of research and, and looked into it and they've just made that decision at the top and kind of forced it on people. Where the ones that really work well, they do their research, they find out what the public actually thinks about the brand and what they should be and, and all that. And, and not to mention their employees, a lot, of, a lot of companies forget about their internal audiences and you got to make sure they're on board with it too. And you know, the companies that do all that work up front and, and think about all that are the ones that are that are successful with it. 
So let's add a new voice to the conversation. Garrett Sloan is Ad Age's technology, digital, and media reporter. As such, he has been heavily involved in the coverage of Facebook's so-called meta rebrand, and he's with us now. Garrett, how do you know how long this has been in the works? How long have they been planning to have this kind of Uber brand called Meta? The thought on it was that it happened quickly, that this was a like sort of fly-by-night Mark Zuckerberg, who obviously is the controlling stakeholder and founder and a very controlling person, kept this close to his vest, and it was something he wanted to do, and it came rapidly. So it seems to me that there are two intertwined impulses to do this rebranding. One of them is that, yes, Facebook has acquired a certain reputation that not everybody rejoices in. And the other one being, well, they really want to be in a different kind of business now. They don't necessarily want to be known as a business where people just hold their phones and and look at a screen. They want to be in a business where they can get people to put on goggles or glasses or headsets or whatever, and then monkey around with their actual experience of reality. So that's It's a little bit like Duncan deciding they don't want to just sell donuts anymore, but it seems even bigger than that somehow, Garrett. Yeah, it's definitely a big gamble that's like years ahead of its time because a lot of what they showed when they rolled out the rebrand was this so-called metaverse where a lot of it's not developed yet. So, Patrick Dugan, I want to hear your take on this. I'm sure Facebook would have gone to Adams and Knight, but I don't think they can afford Zuckerberg can't afford what you guys charge. So um, this seems the way that Garrett lays it out, it seems kind of risky to change your brand in favor of a brand that represents something that you're really not prepared to deliver to people right this instant. Yeah, when you look at it from that perspective, sure. But I think it makes sense from just a sort of a, almost a PR angle. It's just separating the app and the website Facebook that everybody knows, separating that from the corporate Facebook or now meta so that, you know, whenever that's involved in controversies or congressional hearings or, or whatever, you're going to hear meta now instead of Facebook. So to me, that makes a lot of sense is just going the, the alphabet route. I think Facebook gets a little shielded from some of that bad PR. There's one other thing about this that I want to talk to both of you about, but I'm going to start with you, Patrick, because I know it came up in your conversations with our producer, Jonathan McPants, and that is that Facebook slash Meta already has another brand, and that's Zuckerberg, to a degree that's not, I think, even true with some of the other tech companies, and it's certainly not true, wasn't true with Radio Shack or Philip Morris or, you know, I mean, most companies, there isn't one person who is completely symbolic of the enterprise. But there's a way in which no matter what they do, they're going to be the company that Zuckerberg runs. Right, exactly. And I do think that, you know, Zuckerberg is as much a part of the brand as the logo these days, practically. You know, I think as long as he's attached to Meta, he's sort of the bridge between Facebook and Meta. And I think if we were advising him, I'd say you need to start getting a different spokesperson or or face on, on that Meta brand. So, Garrett Sloan, give us your take on this. I mean, there is a way in which whatever they call it, it's still Zuckerberg. Yeah, it's it's actually funny when they did the presentation, he's not running away from it. In presenting this metaverse sort of reality, they were showing the avatars and he showed his avatar and his avatar was all the memes that people make fun of him for online. He embraced he had his uh, 5000 SPF sunscreen on his avatar. He uh, (laughs) did his surfboarding on his avatar. He did his presentation and Sweet Baby Ray's barbecue sauce, which he's also famous for. He doesn't seem to mind that heat, and he's embraced it, I think. So he's not going anywhere, and he's going in the metaverse as is. Let me ask both of you uh, one last question. Same question for both of you, but Garrett, let's stay with you for a second. There's sort of a way in which Facebook, not the parent company of all these sub-brands, but Facebook itself, you know, has 2.9 billion monthly users, something something like that. I mean, in a way, they can't make too big a mistake. This isn't some company that's operating with a kind of a narrow margin, hoping that if they successfully reposition, they can survive in a complex marketplace. I'm not saying that there aren't any challenges to Facebook's hegemony, but, but there's a way in which they could... I mean, Zuckerberg can maybe afford to be a little bit stupid about this and and maybe not back away when he he should do that a little bit. Yeah, they made 
85 billion in advertising revenue in 2020. Most of that comes from 10 million advertisers who are not metaverse ready. So it's not an easy bet. I mean, I think he lives in fear of TikTok, Snapchat, and it doesn't want to become the next Yahoo. So there are risks, but for now they mint money and that's not a short-term concern. So, Pat, I'll let you have the last word on this, but I think this is a little bit different. I mean, Tribune, you know, being kind of a a print-driven entity, really was kind of flailing around trying to figure out, you know, how to spin off one thing, keep another thing. You know, I don't know how they came up with Tronk, but I I mean, they could less afford to make a big mistake, I would assume, than, than the entity known as Meta or Facebook or whatever we're calling it right now. Right. I honestly think Facebook would almost have to try to fail in a, in a dramatic fashion to have anything to worry about. You know, I, I know a lot of people, they've obviously been through a lot of controversy. A lot of people have sort of thought about their relationship with Facebook, either either as like a user or as an advertiser. We have plenty of advertisers that we work with who use Facebook. But it's just such an intertwined part of everyone's lives. It's, it's not easy to just drop it if you even want to. So that was Patrick Dugan from Adams and Knight in Avon and with him Garrett Sloan, who writes about technology for Ad Age. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Irene Papoulis asking me some very searching questions about what we're doing rebranding the Colin McEnroe show. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a -a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. We're listening, we hear you. It's the same problem, isn't it? Well, it's maybe less active. You know, it's, it's more, couldn't, couldn't help glimpse you changing unless uh, we put a spy cam in your shower. We hear you. I think it's a problem, I think it's a problem. Um, we're, we're listening, we're hearing you. I think it needs to be like, we're hearing, but, but nothing is gonna bite me in the ass. Yeah, okay. You know? So maybe it's like, ATN, we are here for you, and here spelled H-E-A-R. We're here for you? That's just gibberish. We're here for you. Okay, we here for you. So that might be like, we 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 here for you, man, because you don't need to hear we here. Yeah, we, we also, also, we here for you. We're here for you. It's good because it's like, it's not clear exactly what the hell it means. So, lots of wiggle room? Yes. We are for you. Okay, that clip was one of the things I insisted on for this particular episode. 
Those were the characters Tom and Greg from the second season of the HBO series Succession trying to come up with a new tagline for their Fox News-like stand-in called ACN. And it's, I think, a pretty good example of what bad rebranding sounds like. So one of the aspects to all of this is that, yes, we are about to enter a period of rebranding here on The Colin McEnroe Show. I mean, not in, in such a way that we would wind up changing the name of the show, for example, but maybe in lots of other ways. And so we wanted to talk about that as we talked about these other kinds of rebranding. And we wanted somebody who knows the show really well and has interesting insights into it to be part of that conversation. So here to talk to me is a long-running, original, first episode ever panelist, Irene Papoulis from Trinity College, to at least ask a few questions and maybe make a few observations about this whole process. Okay. Hello. Well, when I first heard you say on the air that you were just in passing, that you were rebranding the show, I thought, oh no, you know, like what, how could it not be the Colin McEnroe show? So I'm wondering what caused you to want to even rebrand in the first place. Well, first of all, I should say this is part of a company-wide initiative and they're doing this with lots of different shows. I don't know how big a deal they've made about it, but for example, Where We Live rebranded to the extent of, among other things, getting a new logo, having new theme music, stuff like that. So this wasn't necessarily something that I sought out. It was something where our marketing department and other related entities here at the company want to work with us on what they call rebranding. Now, that can be a slippery and elusive term. I think to a lot of us, it means, oh, rebranding, like Facebook comes up with meta. But I guess that's not all that really kind of goes into rebranding. Yeah. I mean, if anyone should be called meta, maybe it would be your show, uh, not (laughs) Facebook. But um, I mean, and I do see, you know, like with a college, for example, you know, sometimes rebranding just means what do we do really well and how can we highlight it more so that it'll draw people to us? You know, like the first thing that comes to mind is the what you have written on your website that's about the sublime and the ridiculous being closely related, you know, and it seems to me that that's really what does characterize your show. And I can't imagine anything besides that that would really work as a way to characterize what you do. Yeah, I mean, and I think for us, it's an opportunity to, to have a conversation about what we do. And the show changes and evolves. 2009 was when we first went on the air. You know, that show is really, really different from the shows that we do in the year 2021. So is there a way to talk to people about how we are changing. I agree the thing about the sublime and the ridiculous is certainly in there somewhere, but it's not the only part of the story. How would you characterize the change? Uh, you know, the, what have you evolved into, would you say? Well, in a couple of different ways. One thing that we haven't talked about too much to the public is we've moved more and more towards becoming a podcast. I mean, all the other shows that are produced by this radio station are broadcast shows with a podcast dimension. We're actually more and more, if you look at the numbers, a podcast that happens to also have a broadcast dimension. So that may mean all kinds of different things. We haven't really had a deep conversation about what it means. It may just change some of our internal practices and not change what we say to the outside world. But the other thing, and you know this very well, Irene, is that this show just isn't just me. It's a whole bunch of different producers working on it together and bringing different aspects of themselves and drawing out maybe different aspects of me. So as we're going through a transition right now, for many, many years, Betsy Kaplan was our senior producer. Now Lily Tyson is. That's going to change things also. For example, one thing that I I would say right now is our show is less political, less interested in politics at least politics in its raw sense, (laughs) you know, politics not overlaid with semiotics and culture and all kinds of stuff, but just politics. We're probably less interested in politics than we've been in our entire existence since we, we began in 2009. You know, and some of that just has to do with changes in my disposition. But some of it also is just, you know, different producers bring different things. This is a little bit like nailing Quicksilver to the wall. I mean, trying to figure out what this show is. We, you know, we did a show on blimps just a few days ago, you know, but last week we did a show about a pretty serious, very serious show about two kinds of historic trauma visited on two very different Jewish communities and how hope arose from from that. So, I mean, you know, I don't want the world to think we're just a bunch of nerds who get interested in you know these very esoteric kinds of questions. 
On the other hand, I don't want people to forget our determination to be very eclectic in our approach. But a lot of it also, I mean, the reason that I'm more willing to go along with this process than I might have otherwise been, because I've always thought of rebranding as to steal a line from Mark Twain, the last refuge of scoundrels. It's kind of like, you know, it's like Facebook. Oh, yeah, we got to rebrand because we screwed up so bad. But you're also right, what you said earlier, which is what if there are things that we're doing that we're not communicating very well about to the public? And maybe we're not even communicating very well internally among ourselves about those things. And that process interests me a lot. Yeah, and it, it interests me too, actually, because I was thinking I have tried to describe your show to people, especially those who don't live in Connecticut. And they're, you know, like the word eclectic is definitely a big part of it, but there it's hard to explain to people why that is that that's so great, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Well, okay, but why is that interesting? You know, people want something to hold on to when they hear the word eclectic. And I have to say, Colin, that you are the thing that holds it all together. And that's why it's called the Colin McEnroe show, you know, and so it is a certain sensibility. And so maybe it's a, it's the show has a sensibility that has to do with your sensibility, which is a really interesting combination of the ability to be really funny and the ability to take things very seriously, you know? And so it goes back to that combination. Maybe it's not even the sublime and the ridiculous, because that just sounds We've heard that before so many times, but silliness connected to seriousness, I don't know. That doesn't sound very exciting, but I think it kind of is. Yeah. You know, one thing that I, in the process that we're about to go through, one thing I want to push back against, like I get what you just said, and there's some reality to it, that the, the common thread that runs through this, at least as far as the listener is concerned, the idea that we could take something that seems like maybe even kind of a bad idea and do something really interesting with it. I mean, in the listener's mind, it probably is me, the host. Now, I actually think the reality of it is much more complicated. And what's happening on the show often is me giving somebody permission to and an encouragement to try something that might get shouted down in other kinds uh, of, of show prep meetings for other kinds of radio shows. And I'll just give a concrete example. When uh, Jonathan McC- Pants, who's been with us, who had been with us in some other less full-fledged permanent forms, when he became an actual full-time producer on our show, the first meeting that we had with him, the first staff meeting he attended, he brought up the idea of doing a show about dioramas. Dioramas, just to remind people, are those kinds of museum exhibits where the you know glass usually encloses some scene of you know the, the Laurentian Mountains or something with beavers running around with Native Americans or something. Anyway. My reaction was, that's a terrible idea. We should do it. I mean, it really doesn't really work as a radio idea. So we should definitely do that idea. And, you know, but then Jonathan's the one who really has to make it work after that. And and I do think that as I participate in this rebranding process, one of the questions I'm going to ask is, is there too much me on this show? Is there a way in which other voices can play a role? Where maybe you'd hear Cat Pastor's voice making certain kinds of announcements and stuff like that. Maybe Lily and Jonathan would sometimes voice their own segments or, you know, and Jonathan in the past has done little essays or commentaries that have dropped into things. One of the questions that I have about the Colin McEnroe show is, does it have to be quite so much Colin McEnroe? Or would the world be somewhat happier getting to know some of the other team members who really do create this product? All right. But it's also, I mean, I guess I have to say from the listener's perspective that those people are interesting because you have a good eye for people who are interesting and you appreciate them, you know, and I even feel that as a panelist on the nose that you'll, you'll sort of put me in a position where I feel more comfortable just being quirkier than I might otherwise have felt comfortable being. I think that's really interesting. I I like that idea. This is a show that I've been saying this a couple of times recently in staff meetings. This is a show also that runs off relationships more than most public radio shows. And by that, I mean, yeah, you've been on the nose a lot of times, but you've also done other things, including the thing you're doing right now. You know, and, and look, just a few days ago, from when I'm talking right now anyway, we did a show about punctuation and we had on it Julia Pastel and Raquel Benedict. Raquel's been a regular nose 
Julia's panelists of late. Julia's worked with our show in all kinds of different capacities. These are people we know. So, you know, in addition to the guest that we had who was from England and who'd written a book about punctuation, we had these two other people whom we know. And, and yeah, I sort of know a lot of people who are on the show pretty frequently well enough to kind of treat this a little bit more like an ensemble project and, you know, where I'm more, much more excited, I, I think, when somebody, you know, when, when one of the panelists, well, just before we even started recording this conversation, I told you about a thing that, that you did on one of the shows that just has caused me endless amounts of delight, even up to the very moment. And and I think, you know, that idea of having a show that, yeah, we have a lot of guests on who we've never spoken to before. But we have a lot of people on, too, who are on a lot, you know, and you sort of know their moves. They don't, you know their rhythms. You people on the nose, you start to know each other's moves and rhythms a little bit, too. And I think that's one of the distinct pleasures of our show. Absolutely. Sort of like putting people in motion because you can see sometimes maybe you can see things that or you even collectively, not even just Colin, you, but can see that people have the capacity to do certain things that maybe even they wouldn't necessarily know they could do that. I think that is part of the sensibility of the of the show. It's, you know, from a listener's point of view also. Right. Well, one of the other rules is and, and I have to live with this rule as much as anybody because I'm the one who made it, is that if we do fail, if we do a show that's terrible, that we really just crash into the into the wall with a really terrible show, that that's okay. That's fine. You know, in fact, we probably should do that on a regular basis. If we're not doing that on a regular basis, it kind of means we're not stretching ourselves enough. We're not pushing the envelope, whatever cliche you want to plug into that. But that idea anyway, that, you know, and, and people kind of love the fact <laughs> that we've done these shows that are at a legendary level, really just epic failures. You know, that makes me happy that we do that. And, you know, I mean, life goes on, right? You do a lousy show, you hold your head for a few hours, and then you lift your head up and you start doing other stuff. Well, listen, as usual, you have asked really thoughtful questions and you've made really thoughtful observations. Irene Papula is from Trinity College. Listen to her on the nose and other episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show and experience her in other ways as well. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. So as we try to sort of figure out this thing called rebranding, we're talking to a lot of people whom we already know and have relationships with. One of those people, and we're going to have to start identifying him differently. He's been on the show lots of times. I've known him since he was in high school. But, you know, the standard introduction is Brendan J. Sullivan is a writer, producer, and DJ best known for his work with Lady Gaga. I'm not sure any of that's preeminently true anymore. I should be saying that you're a TikTok star with 300,000 followers and 70 million views and 9.5 million likes on TikTok. Maybe I'm just describing, maybe you've rebranded so successfully that I'm describing you in a way that's mired in the past. It might be. I have rebranded since the last time I spoke with you, in fact. So explain that. I think that's really true that you have rebranded and successfully rebranded. But but what does that mean to you when you say that? Well, for me, it came out of necessity, like it does with a lot of people who are rebranding. But, you know, in the pandemic, I had I realized I had always sold myself as a DJ who can make your room really crowded. And mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we still don't live in a world where crowded rooms are, are the most ideal thing you can do. And at the same time, I thought, okay, well, I don't know how long this thing will last, but I'm going to give myself a little project. And I pitched to my literary agent. I said, you know, I'm cooking so much and I've, I found this kind of food history niche here and I'd love to write about it. And she said, you know, I'm sure you can write a funny book, but I don't know how to sell it because, you know, no one thinks of you as like a food person. So I went home that day and with my iPhone 7, I started uploading food history and stories to TikTok and found a great little run there to the point where I'm now bigger on TikTok than I've ever been anywhere. So I've known you since you were in high school. And it could be argued that you've rebranded several times. You know, like I knew you at one point where you were like this very pierced, bordering on goth kind of person, you know, <laughs> you know, and then I've known you when you were this sort of Lower East Side scenester and, you know, a fancy suit or something. I mean, maybe that's just growing up. Maybe just as we grow, we go through different phases. Maybe it's, sure. not, maybe it's not fair to call that rebranding. So I would say there's probably two sides of this. One is where you're doing something and it's not working. Mm-hmm. And then the other would be where you're doing something and it works so well that you have to rebrand to get out of the, your new problems, I would say. So I certainly saw, as a Lower East Side scenester, the first time I met Lady Gaga, I believe she was carrying a demo CD 
and it said on it the front the stephanie german band <laughs> and it was supposed to be like a strokes early 2000 girl rock band and that worked for her in that it got her to her next step and then her next step we don't really think of lady gaga as like a rocker or the leader of a you know a band but there was a producer at the time on the lookout for he was trying to do what kim fowley did with the runaways and with joan jett where he did and just formed an, an all-girl rock band to try and sell that to record labels. He was trying to do that at the same time. A scout working for him found Gaga at a, at a singer's showcase where she did one song by herself on the piano. And that was what led to her very first record deal. Now, over the years, I've seen Lady Gaga do many transformations and uh, people compared her to Madonna at first. And I would say that Gaga and Madonna both stepped into the role as shapeshifter right around the time when they needed people to think of them differently. So Madonna used to have these big, huge costume changes, but then she would have them in real life. And it was around the same time she was trying to really get the world to accept her as an actor. You know, she was in Evita and a bunch of other movies at the time. These people are people who want to shed the image that you've stuck them with so they can grow from there. It sounds exhausting. It sounds like just a climate in which <laughs> which identity is is so fungible and so malleable and so changing all the time. And I think that's also closely mirrored in the world of hip hop. I mean, part of the fundamental <laughs> bargain of hip hop is you're you're not going to start out with your regular name anyway most of the time. You know, you're going to you're going to create a nom de guerre, you know, and then if you're Sean Combs, you're going to change it like six times, right? Yeah, I would say the uh, the identity fluidity in hip hop is is the hip hop equivalent of getting bangs. You know, it's just like you get the itch to to move on, to to look a little different, to feel a little different. <laughs> Michelle Obama's second term opens up bangs right yeah. away. Instead, new haircut, new life. Yeah. As the old guy, I should say, this isn't an entirely new phenomenon. And for example, Frank Sinatra briefly retired from singing and then came back as Old Blue Eyes. Old Blue Eyes is back, which is something nobody had ever called him. (laughs) It was a a complete invention, a a reinvention of self, and it really amounted to a kind of rebranding. So, I mean, that does go on. And and I guess sometimes the question is, yeah, am am I changing so I can repurpose? myself? Am I changing who I am, my name, my identity, my style, or, or so that I can exploit more opportunities? Or, uh, like, I don't really know, nobody really knows what his royal badness was really doing when he decided he was going to be the artist formerly known as Prince, and he was going to have this weird little symbol. I, I felt like they were saying, if you want Prince, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> you know, so no one said, no, never mind, you're, you're Prince. I mean, we're calling him Prince now because we're, we're, we're speaking out loud. Right. <laughs> So it was a further laying down of the law and laying down uh, of limits and, and talking about who, who was in control of this transaction, as if there had ever yeah. been any doubt. I also wonder for artists, you know, sometimes that that constant restlessness, you think of somebody like Bowie, who really did have multiple incarnations, you know, radically different looks, different kinds of music to accompany those looks. And I think what we see when we gaze back at that is just a chameleon, a, a restless artistic intellect that wasn't really comfortable doing the same stuff over and over again. At some point, it becomes clownish. So you see someone like Gene Simmons, who is, you know, a grandfather at this point and still wearing the stage outfit from the 70s, but the did, makeup I, and everything like I that. Thought they, I thought they were stopping that. I thought Kiss was going to not wear the black and white makeup. And they've and... done that twice, right? Oh. <laughs> uh, they, had a, they had a disco record they, and they had a, a makeup free era. They had, a, they had the era where they all went solo. Yeah. But I mean, I think for that, I, I think those are... To me, anyway, and obviously I'm not the target audience for Kiss. I wasn't ever the target audience for Kiss. But that seems like an aging band floundering. Whereas I think for Bowie, it was like, well, no, I'm creative enough to recreate myself over over a series Uh, of cycles. You know who I had a great conversation with this one? Questlove, the drummer from The Roots. Yeah. We were being DJs one time talking the dumb conversation. What's the most you ever spent on a record? And of course, I thought it was pretty cool that I bought an LP for 1500 bucks. He owns the masters to uh, Michael Jackson off the wall. <laughs> so I, I lost that, that little measuring contest there. But he <laughs> was able to listen to them and hear the absolutely unedited tracks there. And he said that off the wall without Quincy Jones's restraint would have been the last and most forgettable record of the disco era. And we wouldn't have any clue what Michael Jackson would be like 
in the 80s, just based on that record from 1979. And he said it was one synthesizer marimba tone away from being just shelled. <laughs> and what Questlove said that stuck with me the most there, he said to me, as an artist, you're always starting at square zero. And it's, it's very rare that someone finishes off the wall and comes out with Thriller. And it's even more rare that someone with the success of Thriller can follow it up with bad. Yeah, I mean, if you're really committed to creativity or to invention, that is your attitude that you're always starting at zero. I think we don't have to look very mm -hmm. far to find examples of people who have no intention of doing that whatsoever and just sure. you know, and plan to keep just sort of burping out burps that are pretty similar sim yeah pretty similar to their to their previous burps. As I look at artists who have rebranded or or transformed in meaningful ways, one of the things they do is think about their present, another thing they do is think about their future, but the other thing they do is they think about the past and, and they begin to think about the past once they become very successful in the present. And you can sort of well, you can start with Lady Gaga, I mean, her collaboration with Tony Bennett, where suddenly, you know, mm -hmm. she's out on stage singing, and, and I, jazz vocals are something that I actually do know a lot about, singing a very credible version of Lush Life, which is one hell of a tough song to sing. And you just sort of think, this is somebody who's decided that the past matters, you know? And, and Jackson, yeah. Jackson does it to a certain degree by embracing Fred Astaire, you know? There's a way in which all of these people, one of the things that they can do when they rebrand, when they change, is add a little bit of the past into their very forward-looking art. I think that's uh, something people are embracing as more vital now. And I see it in my, I do see it in my TikTok feed. I will say that because a lot of the chefs that I had trained with when I was trying to get a restaurant job, when I was like 20, when I just wanted, you know, some cash and, and to be able to go out at night and see all my favorite bands. A lot of them had been classically trained and they had favorite chefs. They had, they had a story of hanging out with Jacques Pepin and something like that. But then those people may have taken a break to try and remain relevant rather than look to their past. And that's why we have so many Pierre Freni, Julia Childs, and Jack Pepin all at one point wrote a diet book, you know, <laughs> a low fat cookbook to fit in in the seventies and eighties. And I, I think that loses its sense of a, a distinctive past, maybe a, a reliable past, like with the, with the Fred Astaire to Michael Jackson past. And I think that in there is part of it is is these people understanding that they are part of a legacy and not not to take the credit away from the people they looked up to when they were fans. Okay, that was Brendan J. Sullivan, writer, producer, and DJ, and now apparently a food history TikToker with 70 million views. That's rebranding. After a break, we're going to talk to our old pal, a friend of the show from the very beginning, Mike Pesca, about his impending rebrand, and yes, ours as well. So whenever we do something like this, something that's a little bit meta, something that involves the show looking at itself, talking about itself a little bit, one of the people I like to go to is Mike Pesca, partly because he has spent some time listening to our show and also because I think our approach is – this is the point in the Bond movie where I, as the villain, say to Mike – we're not that different, you and I. Uh, <laughs> oh, I expect you to die, Mr. McEnroe. <laughs> so, but it is sort of true that I think our approach has been similarly eclectic. We have both have this idea, perhaps bordering on overconfidence, that we can tackle almost any topic. And if we can bring our best effort to it, shed some new light on it, and we're interested in a lot of different things. So you hosting The Gist, which is about to enter its second incarnation, and us engaging in whatever kind of rebranding effort we're involved in right now. It kind of makes sense for us to talk right now. How are you thinking about the gist right now? It's been off for a while. I've missed it so much. But as I, I think about you thinking about it, I'm interested to know how you're feeling about, you know, maybe changing its identity, if at all. Right. So part of what I wanted to do was to, I was so proud of everything I put out over the air. Let's call podcasting the air. Okay. So proud of it that I didn't want to change it. But sometimes when you break up with a former employer, which is, you know, short version of what happened, who gets the intellectual property rights? You can't do, you know, weekends and holidays. It's not like a normal <laughs> divorce. So that was that was a big part of it. We still have it, but I don't want to do the exact same things. I want to use it as uh, an opportunity. And so we're calling it just season two. 
it'll look a little different, but it'll sound almost exactly the same. So to me, you know what it's like? It's like one of those nonprofits that's really proud of what they're doing, but they named themselves something that doesn't quite work in the modern world. So now they're just a collection of initials. I think KFC might be one of those, but there are, there are arts agencies that do that. Is uh, is the NAACP just the NAACP now? Yes, not, that's, that's my yes. understanding. Well, let me ask you this, too. So when you were getting, starting the show out, and you and I were having some conversations at the time, and I, I think I listened to a pilot or whatever, and one thing that I thought at the time was anything you do, when you're creating a new radio show or podcast, you know the things that you do every episode for the first 20 episodes, you have to sort of think, what would it be like to have to do that 300 times, you know, or or 500 times or whatever. And so one thing that you do is you have a sign off that I can never remember. (laughs) I can never remember exactly how it goes. You have another thing called an Anton Twig, which is a periodic kind of recapping of what's going on in the show. And and people are kind of chiming in with follow up questions and things like that. So you have features on the show and you have things that you have to write every day. I almost said that to you when I was listening to the pilot. I thought, just imagine that you're going to have to write a little joke about your producer every day or something because after a while, you know, you're going to wonder whether you should have ever signed up for that because it's right. just a lot of any, work. Any bit, any bit of flair or cleverness gets set in stone and <laughs> obligates you to riffs on the cleverness. So it's a little like the top 10 list, right? Remember yeah. when Letterman was like, okay, this is, I don't know if it's played out. We want to do something else. He was not allowed. He was not allowed to back off the top 10 list. I guess that's why he retired. He didn't want to do any more top 10 lists. Our motto, by the way, is um, the sign-off is Umperu Deperu Duperu, which I can tell you, and I don't normally divulge this to listeners. It didn't start from the beginning. It started from me coming back from a trip to Turkey and realizing or observing that people in Turkey were extremely unexcited by the observation that in English, Turkey is both a food and a country. They did, they knew that and they did not care. And then someone told me the same thing was true in Peru, where weirdly, the word Peru in Portuguese means turkey, means the bird, the turkey. So if you get your mind around this, and this isn't even how the <laughs> motto was adopted, but there is a bird, it is called the turkey. It happens to be the name of two different countries in two different languages. But a uh, Portuguese or a Brazilian listener who spoke Portuguese said, well, not only that, Mike, and this is what piqued my attention, Peru is slang for penis. So I said, oh, really? What would be a Peruvian turkey penis? And then he told me it was um peru de peru du peru, thus became our slogan. Okay, that was. Oh, and by the way, by the way, in the negotiation with Slate, I don't know if I can divulge this, but um, there's a page of like what is the intellectual property that I get to keep, and mm. it was negotiated, and literally that phrase was on it. Lawyers were involved yeah. in Umperu Deperu Duperu. I'm guessing Slate didn't fight you really hard on that one. I'm guessing. <laughs> sort of, all right, that one, that one's over on your side of the line, and I can just tell by the way that first of all. The way that you told it was it's so complicated and kind of wound around itself yeah. like some kind of seashell that, <laughs> that I can tell that, first of all, it's unbelievably complicated to the average person and also causes you great delight. So <laughs> that means you're not changing it. Yeah, that's the important thing. That's the lodestar. That's the shining light of the show. Do the, does it do those two things, confuse most people and delight me? Then it's going on. <laughs> and by the way, I do have to note this because we have a big overlap with public radio type listeners. Yes, I know. Turkeys and birds of their ilk do not have what we would call a penis. I didn't know that. <laughs> Cochlea, I think it is. <laughs> I had, see, I didn't know that. But that doesn't mean a lot of NPR listeners don't know that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like the only reason that I'm enthusiastic about participating in something that's called rebranding, and it's not rebranding like Philip Morris or something, it's rebranding kind of just rethinking the message that we tell about our show, is that it's an interesting thing to do kind of internally. It's interesting for me to do it in conversations with myself, sitting alone in a dark room, but also talking to the producers, the other people who work on the show, right? That's that's what you want to do sometimes is say, am I doing this show in a way that I'm not even wholly conscious of? In other words, are there things that ultimately wind up being the sum of what the show is that I wouldn't even be able to articulate if I sat down and tried to consciously do it. And then you also have to ask yourself, is that a good process to become conscious of something that maybe you were doing intuitively and by the gut in a way that was helpful to you? Yes. I forgot who it was. An English philosopher said, first we make our habits, then they make us. That's something that the basketball coach Shaka Smart would tell his players. And it seems, and I told my kids that, but as adults in life, I mean, what are we? What is our 
intuition and what is our consciousness, we want it maybe to be more than the sum total of the ingrained habits, the ruts that we've worn into the earth. And if we keep following those, well, just listen to the term, the ruts, is that who we are? So it is, it is a good exercise to step back and ask that very question. But the other thing I think about rebranding is, you know, it should be a little painful. I mean, think about how painful it is to the cow. <laughs> and so it shouldn't be if you constantly rebrand i guess you become madonna you know that's she's the one person whose brand is to constantly rebrand but if you constantly rebrand then really who are you so it should be taken not lightly i also have a huge suspicion of it as a corporate exercise i think mostly it's like oh great facebook is meta and they're still you know playing fast and loose with our data and threatening if not our democracy certainly the tigray region of Ethiopia. So there sometimes is just the word itself invokes cynicism, suspicion in me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I do. I've been saying it's the last refuge of, of scoundrels. And I mean, that, that is one of its purposes, ultimately, is to try to conceal something about certain companies and about certain other enterprises. That's not the only thing. You know, that's not the only reason to do it. I mean, one of the other reasons to do it, I think, is am I communicating effectively about what it is that I actually am trying to do? But I think also, and this is another, maybe it's the same way that you and I are not all that different, Part of our approach is to be pretty unpredictable. At least that's what we tell ourselves, I think, you know, that, you know, yes, we will do a show about towels. Yes, we will do a show about, you know, terrible acts of anti-Semitism in two different periods of history. This is the same program. It'll do those two shows, you know, in, in, within some adjacency to one another, too. And you're the same way, I think. You know, you'll do very, very funny takes on stuff or tackle some pretty whimsical topic. But the meat of what you do, I think, also is very serious and analytical. And so that's an argument for like just ah, not really wanting to brand. Yes. And I think I, I, I came to this conclusion after writing a what if book, which had 20 different authors. And there were so many different there were sports what ifs, but some were comical and some were, you know, faux encyclopedia essays and some were Jerry Tarkinian's speech to the Hall of Fame, so many different styles. And that was satisfying to me and the readers of the book, but I would say the relatively few readers of the book. And I was talking to a creator of an anthology TV show, one of the Duplass brothers. I, I don't want to get which one wrong, who does that uh, it was, it anthology. Was, it was Zeppo, Zeppo Duplass, I think. It was, yeah. That's right. Chico Duplass told me that <laughs> he really was trained on the piano. Yeah, so he does this <laughs> anthology TV show for HBO. It's really incredibly satisfying to him, but it's not a huge hit. And I do think the kind of things that we do are inherently, they can be great and our listeners or the audience will love them. But I wonder if they have a ceiling because mostly the idea of the one thing and everyone knows what the thing is, that is the dominant form of media, probably the dominant thing that we as people give our attention to. I mean, when you think of the Muppets, all the iconic Muppets are one color, <laughs> one shape, and they all have their one major character trait. And once you start getting very eclectic Muppets who could do a lot of things, they sometimes become niche or background players. But on the other, other hand, part of the joy of the Muppets is that they aren't just one thing. Yeah, I mean, the individual M Muppet is one thing, right. but the, the Muppet Collective. The Muppet Collective. <laughs> <laughs> the Muppet Borg. Yeah. And so, I mean, and, and that's a lot of what you and I are trying, both trying to do is to try to do a show. I think you're absolutely right that if, if you want to guarantee a certain kind of audience and a certain level in, of enthusiasm, you know, do like a British baking show or, or whatever, you know, I mean, a show that has a preordained focus and topic. You're going to get everybody who ever wanted that kind of show to exist and maybe a few other people who are pleasantly surprised at how interesting it is. Yeah. But I also observe that, you know, there's this uh, creative impulse, especially in the beginning. Let's get back to Letterman, right? In, it, in their first couple seasons, they were intent on breaking the form. And they would do shows where he, one show where he infamously refused to go to a commercial. And they would do an entire show, you know, not just with monkey cams or tiger cams, but, you know, through the perspective of, I think, a, a backstage guest. They would, they were intent on breaking the form. And they that quickly went away or somewhat quickly went away because I do think that in order to tell people what you are and to be an established brand, you can't keep on the fly remaking your brand. Here's another thing I'll throw out though. I think maybe this is true, maybe this is not. You and I are suspicious of the idea of rebranding is that 
We remember the rebranding that doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, we call it rebranding. Or when there's a question, if it's going to work, we call it rebranding. But when it does work, we just call it the brand. And we forget that, you know, Netflix was even Quickster or some DVD service for a while or contemplated it being. It's just Netflix. And I don't know if that's going to happen with Facebook and Meta, but, you know, branding is one of those things that the good is oft interred in its successes. Yeah. And one thing, one thing you could ask yourself about the Facebook meta question is, how well did it work for Ron Artest? You know, did people really remember him? Don't, don't you go meta world peace or whatever his name was supposed to be and go, you know, the guy who used to be Ron Artest. You see, if you're doing that, then the rebrand did not work. Oh, God, it's it's very similar to uh, Ron Artest. Like, it had great promise in the beginning. It was a giant kerfuffle. Do you think in 20 years there'll be the documentary looking back at this period and we'll say we got, we got Facebook all wrong? At least Facebook was f- first and early to recognize its problems. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a big St. John's fan. I just remember Ron Artest as this sweet 19-year-old who averaged like six steals a game. Yeah, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, no matter what he calls himself, he's still Ron Artest. He's still basically, I mean, you you can't change the content because you've rebranded. That's the that's, least, that's the other concern that I think yeah. I would have for you and me too. If once we get through with all this, and maybe there's another message we want to send about ourselves or something that we've noticed about what we do that we need to communicate about better. The one thing you would never want to do is shift what you do to fit the rebrand. Right, and I think that. With our test, we can say that at least it was sincere. You know, it wasn't thrust upon him to get away from his malice in the palace reputation. When Facebook rebrands because they have to, or when Philip Morris becomes Altria, eyebrows are raised because, you know, it's uh, this was obviously thrust upon them and they think they're being clever. I would think a... Connecticut public broadcasting situation is closer to Ron Artest than Philip Morris. <laughs> well, on that incredibly complicated, <laughs> I don't even know if I can call it an analogy exactly, uh, but whatever that it's a, was. It's a Mobius strip of semi-logic. That was Mike Pesca. Keep an eye out, or an ear perhaps, for the relaunch of his now independent daily news podcast, The Gist, sometime in December. And that's our show. Thanks to Kat Pastor, Eugene Amatruda, and Dylan Rays. Thank you very much for listening. 